0: T'was the night that I was married And lay on my married bend Up um came a bull captain And this to me he said Arise, arise, my young wedded man Rise up and come with me To the rocks of Bonnie Gibraltar And fight the enemy
1: That's Mick Quinn from Mullabon in County Armagh singing his family's version of the rocks of Bonnie Gibraltar. Michael Ned Quinn, as he was also known, grew up in the townland of carrick As a child, he was steeped in the farming and folk culture of the 1930s and 40s and remained immersed in the traditions of his home place throughout his adult life, living in Mullabon all of his 88 years. He loved the dancing, music and singing that surrounded him, forever collecting songs and going on to become a renowned singer and then to write and perform his own songs.
0: My love, he built a great big ship
1: and a ship of naughty faith Later in life, he developed the craft that he possibly became most famous for, that of a storyteller of self-penned, humorous tales that he performed everywhere, from local backroom bars to international festival halls. Cited as one of the last great chieftains of the folk arts in Ireland and by some as the high king of storytellers, he was a man full of mischief and song, ready to elicit laughter one minute and to sing a tragic 20-verse ballad the next. Mickle Ned took seriously the importance of the tradition and forever encouraged others along the road as he remained a unique example of a rich cultural life. This programme, The Bard of Armagh, celebrates Mick of Mullabawn.
0: The rocks of Bonnie Gibraltar and fight the enemy.
1: McQuinn's son, Mihawk Quinn.
2: Well, I don't know when he started to learn songs. There's a story that he told me about when he was really young. He was working with his dad, my granddad, John, John Ned Quinn, and they were ploughing the field with a horse and plough. And grandad was driving the horse and Dad was only a lad, like of ten or eleven, and he was walking behind with a, a stick with a hook on the end of it, just rounding off the top of the drill. If you didn't do that, the the stalks of the potato came up at a funny angle. That was going on, and a hail shower came down, and they ran to Ellen Watt's house, which was the closest house, to take shelter under the eave. And Ellen was inside, going about her business singing Dobbins' Flowery Veil, which is an Armas song. Uh, he knew of the existence of this song, but couldn't get the words of it. And Ellen always denied that she did know it, but he caught her singing it, so she couldn't deny it anymore. She sang the song from several times. So Granda, then, when he went back into the field, was singing the song all the day. My da remembers sort of half-learning Dobbins' Flowery Veil at the same time as his da in the field. Haven't learnt it by ear from Ellen Watt, just by chance. And that's the way they had to learn songs. Like, there was no recordings of people that they had access to. He, he sang that song all his life, you know, and, and had, I don't know how many songs he had, but would, would have been easily into the hundreds.
0: When a pair I espied by the
2: Pure example of the tradition being handed down, and without people like my granddad who took the time to sit Ellen Watt down and learn that song, you know, maybe that song would wouldn't be sung in our area, wouldn't be sung in our family. So songs died out.
0: I fair to you,
3: his... Like
2: it'd be my favourite song of his to sing. I'd get emotional singing it nearly because I I think of him as a 14 year old by now, whenever, or younger, you know, whenever he would have heard it first. Adieu, fair maid to you, he said, for soon I must set sail and bid adieu. To Armand, you, and to Dobbins' flowery vale.
1: In November 1942, Michael Ned was hired out at the hiring fair in Newry at the age of 16. He was sold for £55 for six months. He was the servant boy you hear about in the songs and stories of old. He worked the farm for his boss and collapsed exhausted every night in his room above the horses in the stable. He missed the hard work at home and dreamed about the football in the summer and, of course, the local dances. When the long six months was over, he returned to Carricknagavna, never to leave home again.
3: My name is Kate, uh, one of Michael Quinn's daughters. I'm the third in the family of five. There's five of us. Him and Uncle Peter would have been doing man's work when they were still children, when they were still at school. Daddy left school, I think. I think he was 13 when he left school, 12 or 13. So it wasn't easy, you know. So you can see how the, the singing and the bit of crack would have come in as a bit of relief for them. So there were flax mills here and then when the flax was in, they would have dances. And he would have cycled from here to Newry for a dance and cycled home again, himself and his two cousins, Peter Joseph and Peter Anthony. So uh, that's before they were married, so we're talking early 1950s. But that was their social life then, whenever... Possibly most of the rest of the world was doing rock and roll and stuff like that. That's what they were at. You know, there were certain dances that are from South Armagh, like the three tunes. Daddy was a great dancer of that and, um, and loved it.
1: Mickle's younger brother, Brian Quinn.
4: The High Call Chap, The Sweets of May and The Three Tunes with three dances that would have been lost only for the dancing down here in Jemmy the Master's house. And they'd be dancing in his house maybe so many nights a week. And word got out about this dancing, and Nan Quinn down at Bersbrook was a great dance teacher. She got in touch with some fella from Dublin, and he come down to Jemmy the Master's house, and they danced the dance, and she and him wrote down the steps. And that's how them dances was kept alive. And that man took them back to Dublin and they uh, danced them there. And they went out from Dublin and everywhere. There. And them three dancers would have been lost, only for that they wrote down the, the steps as they danced them.
3: There was not some work. So when he was working for a rent collector, the. People that he was collecting rent from were usually older people who had got housing executive houses because their own house was remote, uh, no electricity, no running water. So they came in close to the villages into housing executive houses and he loved it because he loved the cracks and the stories that he would get from the people and they loved him. But there was a couple and I can only remember her name. She was Sarah and she was from Tyrone and she'd met her husband in England and they'd come back to live in South Armagh and she had loads of songs that Daddy hadn't heard before so he had bought a Bush cassette recorder and he would go in and hide that in his bag and get the crack going and then get her to sing and this is one of the songs that he got off her and uh, it's Who Is That At My Window Oh who that at my window, I fear I'll have to rise. It's your love, your own true lover. don't you now know me? Oh, be gone from my bedroom window. I disown your company. He was still known. People would talk about, are you Michael Quinn's The Rent Collector? So people would know him as The Rent Collector, people of that era, you know. Um, and he got to know an awful lot of people around the country. He was known far and wide. He answered no. You've gone to court with another fair maid and you've left me here in grief. Now be gone from my bedroom window For I'll grant you no relief
4: Every year we went to the flower, whatever it was, like sligo Ballina, Sunmel, you name it, everywhere with a flower we were there. The flower was in the store this time and we were in this pub and he was telling this story. And I remember the people standing up in windows and ledges and uh, uh, taking advantage point to see this man, what this man was doing, Do you know. He was just holding the audience in his hand like that. And he was there. And there, there were just, oh, you know, there, were, there were hanging out of other. And uh, he was opening and flaring the stole. He was doing something at it, at the opening ceremony. It'd be great, but it was, it was a time not to be missed.
5: You know a time not to be missed. Well I'm glad you're all here for to see that I hit the big time on the money at last. <laughs> well way back in nineteen thirty nine some years would mind the paddy wouldn't remember it down there any of the Second World War started. And we were issued with gas masks and ration books and Hitler was playing particular hell across Europe at the time. We were rationed with two, pound, two ounces of bacon, two ounces of butter and two ounces of lard. That to do you the whole week. And old Maggie Moan come in to me mother and she says, Alice, she says... I don't care, she says, what anyone says, but man, woman or child needs at least one good feed in the week to keep the bowels in good work and all <laughs> And Maggie was a woman that practised what she preached.
6: <laughs>
5: not, like, not like some of the ones we have now. <laughs> Maggie would go for her pension every Friday get the pension, and then she would go in, you called it the rations that time. She got the rations and came home, sat there the morning, slung the pan, put on a lump of the lard on it, the two ounces of bacon, two duck eggs, and fried them. And then she lifted them off, and she had a pan of lovely clear gravy, and she would split the flour of the bread down the middle and put the cut side down on the gravy, and it soaked it up, and when it was golden brown, she took it off. And ate it and lived to be ninety-seven years old. <laughs> <laughs> at that time, the bacon you got—you got the two ounces just like a plug of tobacco. There, there would nothing for it to slice the bacon at that time. Only the knife. But I remember the first bacon slicer coming into Mullaban, and there was no electricity. There was a wheel on it, and you put round this wheel here, and it put round another wee wheel, and it went round like hell blazes, and it cut the bacon. And old Ben Mcardle. He wanted to show the wee girl how to do it, that whenever he'd be away at a funeral or something like that, the girl in the post office could take over and slice the bacon. And while he was showing her how to do it, he took that finger off there. <laughs> and he was in the hospital for about six weeks. He got an infection as well. And he came home and his old neighbour, Barney the lad, went over for to, to sympathise with him. He never got in to see him. Oh, Jesus, Barney says, see, it happened the simplest ever you've seen. He says, come up, let's show you the way that it happened. <laughs> and he went up and he got the bacon and I said, and we're going to go off another thing." <laughs> so the bacon slicer was put into cold storage and I don't know what was to finish up of it anyhow.
3: Granda was a singer, he was a singer. You sang, you went to a dance and the band took a break. Well, you were expected to step up and sing and entertain the people well, to let the band have their cup of tea. We didn't really think they were proper traditional songs until the Ulster singers started to get together and sing and then he met people like Paddy Tunney, you know, those kind of really good singers. Uh, John Kennedy who was a great friend at Addie's who were singing the same kind of songs and maybe a different version of a song that was here that they hadn't heard anyone else singing
1: Mickle sang and collected songs all his life and was a founding member of the Ring of Gullion Cultist branch in Fork Hill that started in 1975 and that met every Tuesday. Mickle never missed a night, encouraging musicians and singers over the decades. He was later a key part of the Ring of Gullion Festival of Traditional Singing that brought singers from far and wide into South Armagh throughout the 1980s and 90s. He was also part of the infamous Stray Leaf Folk Club, that invited the most accomplished traditional musicians to play in the intimate venue of a converted piggery shed,
7: and left his lovely Sally, the girl he did love dear.
1: Traditional singer
7: Patricia Flynn. That song is a song that was uh, sung by uh, Mickle for many years, and I would have first heard it uh, way in the 80s uh, from Mickle. Uh, it's the connection with County Armagh, you know, it made it very special, you know, and it's uh, even more special now than when I sing it because uh, we don't have Mickle with us anymore. He was forced to take the bounty. And far to say And he left his lovely sally in The county of
6: Armagh My name is Jim and um, I've known McQuinn since Patricia and I moved back into South Armagh 1979, The first involvement with him was through the Ring of Gullion Cotus group in Fork Hill and Mick and other local artists would, would visit there every Tuesday night and then we um, were involved with him in the Ring of Gullion uh, festival for traditional singing and the Australian Folk Club and then as we got to know him and he started moving out with, to fe- attending festivals and okay. flowers we would accompany him or he would come with us, we would go with him And then he spread out further, travelling to England, travelling to America. So we were with him a lot of the time.
7: In the late 70s, I I wasn't singing. I didn't sing out at all. Michael had known that my mother and my father were singers and my aunties. So he said, you know, you've got to sing a song. You must know a song. So I think I knew one song at that stage. And uh, I sang it, and then the next time we go to the session... I'd be asked again to sing a song. And he would have encouraged me to to learn songs, you know, and it was, it was through that involvement. And as Jim said, then we got to know him so well and uh, it was just uh, such fun over the years to, to be with Mickel. He was great. It was like going away with a teenager, you know, a 70-year-old teenager. <laughs>
0: you've heard of the blank crow of eikel and the dastardly deeds that he done of the eagle high ocean a golden and the wild geese forever have gone you've heard of the marlin duckling and the boys that went hunting the ran but you'll never forget the commotion when the first ostrich came to Mulaban. Now he hadn't wings like a swallow, they were much bigger than that. And he didn't crow like the moorcock, nor fly round the house like a band. But he stood
7: on two
3: legs... The Singing Weekend here, they invited people. Uh, it opened a whole new world.
7: We first had a first in 1981 they um, the on for 25 years. Somebody came up with the idea. I think it might have been Brian Murphy, uh, the late Brian Murphy, who was a great singer from Fork Hill. Uh, let's just have a weekend of singing, and the heck with with all these musicians. Jerry O'Hanlon, the late Jerry Hanlon, was one of the organisers himself, and Jim and Brian Murphy. It was magic on a Friday night. People to congregate and to welcome in in Fork Hill, and hadn't seen each other for a year, or maybe uh, well the people, new people coming in, and eventually people become from England and Scotland and it, it, was, it was a superb weekend. Yeah,
6: I think part of the reason was that there wasn't as many activities or festivals around at that time, and people really hadn't seen each other for maybe since the previous year. It's very different in the recent past, you know, where there's so much happening. But the thing was that Mick, you know, Mick was the key of all of that, I mean, and uh, his presence ensured that there was going to be a good night wherever, wherever you go with him.
7: Mickle wasn't known as a storyteller... Then he was a singer and he played the baron. John Campbell was the storyteller then. and They were two great mates. They were, they were such fun uh, together. John Campbell, the famous
1: storyteller, was Mickle's lifelong friend, neighbour and fellow sheep farmer. When they were both retired, they spent their time farming, telling stories and generally enjoying life.
2: They were farming, sort of part-time farmers. You couldn't make a living on the, on the farms that both of them had. They weren't big enough farms. That's all they were interested in. People were mad to get them to go and tell stories and sing songs. All they wanted to do was talk about sheep and stuff. <laughs> so
3: Him and John were really close friends and John had a sheep house there and Addie would keep his sheep in John's house. And instead of going all the way around the road, which would take less than 10 minutes of a walk... They built a plank across the river at the bottom of our garden and it was basically two big dale planks, well supported. You can see the remains of the support all the way across with a handle. So um, Daddy would head over you know, to look at the sheep or to feed them or whatever and a ten minute job would end up with mammy sending one of us over to see was he coming home for his dinner or what? Because him and John would be there cracking. I'll talk for about an hour or so, you know. So, uh, it was it was great for them. And I thought they were old men at the time; they were in their fifties, um, experts at. You know, oh, young men, youngish men playing at being old men, you know, you're young and lighting your feet there, Arthur, you run up to the bar, you know, and um, they just had really good fun, and they were great company, they were great crack to be out with as well. you know.
1: The two boys of Maliban grew up from the same soil. Their childhood experiences were similar, and they shared a sense of humor and a love of the land.
3: They were lifelong friends, you know. Who, Daddy was devastated when John died short the, within a year of Mammy dying, you know, so um, it was a big loss to him. Like, they went everywhere together. John would be asked to do a gig somewhere and Daddy would go with him, shorten the road, and then Daddy could sing a song as well and give John a break if needed. But... Um, you know they they had great sport together really in that period of time and they from their late late fifties on when they weren't working and they were fit and able to enjoy life as they could.
7: Central part of Michael was the singing. I think he he just loved it and the story of the song, and then of course, you know probably the mid nineties he started to write his own. Uh, songs and comical songs which they've been recorded by uh, other artists I know Andy Irvine has recorded um, the man that shot the dog but uh, yeah it was it was really the core of his life I think the singing.
1: From his early life learning songs his time on stage with the local drama society where he met his wife Tess and his enthusiasm for collecting songs and meeting and talking with older people while doing so all seemed to lead Mickle to write and sing his own songs and perform his own stories. Both his stories and his songs were very much based on his life experience and wrapped up in punchlines. This is true for his most famous song, The Man That Shot the Dog, an epic tale told from the dog's point of view. His
2: son, Michal, tells the story. Whenever he was farming, he had a sheepdog. It broke out and... Went into a man who bred pedigree gun dogs for sale, left them with pedigree gun dog mixed with borough collie, which aren't great for uh, selling those gun dogs. He caught him the second time he tried to do that. I was with my dad. We were looking for the dog because we were heading down to the farm. We knew probably where he was because this was a big attraction for the dog. And we actually heard the shots. And we got the dog came back with pellets and, you know, shotgun pellets. The whole talk about what was he going to do because he was a strong-willed man, you know, he wasn't going to let it drop. John Campbell came over, came over the plank. John said, well, you're a, a bard, you know, you're telling stories and you're singing songs. Years ago, if somebody wronged the bard, the bard would write a song about them and they'd be in disgrace. So that's what you should do. And that's what he bloody did. He wrote The Man That Shot the Dog which is about 14 verses of telling the whole story, and it uh, became famous. It was a big hit <laughs> around around the traditional circle.
0: As he sits and strokes my hand, he searches round my body for those little balls of lead. And he's using awful language as he sits there on the long and these are some of the things he says about the man that shot his down. Miss scams like crams, grow up in flabs around every he feels and snutters flow down to his toes, and hacks come on his heels, me hair fall out, and his woman pout, and his fart smell like a hong, and the devil's look fall on the nurey nook, the man that shut his dung. Me piles around his big backside licks the robberies on their stock and every time that he lifts his gun that his stomach it may bark and as he goes a-hunting over heather hills or bong made the diarrheas gait with all its might from the man that shot the dung now to conclude and finish, I am on all fours once more. And I feel that urge comin' over me that did one day before. So I'll slip out some dark evening in the mist or the tank fog. And leave another half a dozen pups with the man that shot the down.
2: He often said that it was that song that got him recognised. He was invited to things on the strength of it and then he'd tell the story of what happened and they'd get to hear him story telling, and they'd realise, Jesus, there's something about this boy and the word went round about him.
1: Mickle was famous for his funny introductions to songs that always ended in laughter that he allowed to die down before launching into the song itself. The introductions got longer and the demand for him to tell full-blown yarns grew and Mickle obliged and loved to do so. He was able to develop his skills among friends around the country like the Golden traditional singers in Dublin but he also found a home in the Bard of Armagh Festival of Humorous Verse a competition for funny poems and stories that ran for 23 years.
3: Daddy didn't really appreciate himself until he got well on in years and the Bard were very good to him, they loved him and they used to invite him down to open the show just for the crack (laughs) and he would always open them and get the crowd going and that sort of thing. He was always very appreciated by them and he was very proud, he was the first recipient of the Hall of Fame and the Bard of Armagh as well. Like He could never get over that that crowd was... Spellbound by him and they were like he he really he really flourished at that so I th- and I think as well it opened up a whole new skill to him and Daddy would always be watching you home he was very affectionate like that he'd be watching you coming in big hug for you as soon as you come in the door and then there were times he'd come in and there'd be no sign of him, and I'd say, "Mommy, where is he? Oh, he's in there. You know. And he'd be writing something and looking for a word to rhyme with or trying to get the right turn of phrase, and he'd be in there with pages and books and stuff. But I, I think that part of his life started then, that more thoughtful, introspective part of his life.
1: As well as his funny songs and recitations, like The First Ostrich of Mullaban and My Father's Spanish Ass, Miguel also wrote beautiful songs about his home place, like the fair county of Armagh and my lovely Coyon Mountain
0: come listen to my story and i will tell you now i was reared upon the mountain close to the calf and cow it was there i spent my childhood those days i did enjoy Round the foot of Cowan Mountain Where I rambled as a boy At the school in Carnagona I spent many's the gloomy day As I watched that long come lunchtime And we got out To play, and when our day was ended, and I climbed those green hills high to see my cow and mountain, where I rambled as a boy.
1: Michael grew up hearing songs of fairies and ghosts but his own yarns were peppered with punchlines and based on characters and experiences that he filtered from his past into absurd and yet somehow believable tales. He always wore a suit and tie, carried an air of authenticity and generosity of spirit. He began to work hard at his craft and knew that he was good at it and loved the experience of engaging with an audience. He is one of those live performers who draws you into a far away time and place that is made familiar and present by his skill and sense of fun.
5: And it, the war was the best thing that ever happened round our place because we had never any pocket money. I'd be out after rabbits, and if you caught a rabbit, it was one and sixpence. And you always had pocket money. And I was out this day on the mountain, and there was a man lived, he had a wee house up on the mountain called Dan Grant. No road up to it. The donkey had a path up, would carry up anything he wanted. And my mother would say, Now, when you were out, call in with Dan because he might need something. I hadn't time, you were after rabbits on. But this day, sleet showers and snow showers coming. And I saw the shower coming and I ran for the door. And as I was opening the door, the hailstones was happening at my heels. And I come in and Dan was at the fire and I says, hello, Dan, I says, that's a bad day. No gassings, says see, there's no such a thing as a bad day. I says, do you see them hailstones? I do, he says, but that, that doesn't make it a bad day. Yesterday, he says, is past and gone. No good to you or me or nobody else. Tomorrow we might never see it. This is the best day in your life, he says. The two of us is alive. Come up to the fire. There was two grey goats laying, sitting, just laying beside him on the chair, chewing their cud. And the, the mother of the cat that he put out was laying on the hearthstone. And the big dog, lovely big collie dog, was there just looking up into his face. And the tail going just like that all the time. That was all the part of Dan's floor was clean. <laughs> and, <laughs> he had a, a brown jug at one time. It was a sort of a pot-bellied wee jug. And one day he come up out of the bedroom and all he could see was the tail and the two hind legs of the young cat down in the jug of milk. And he done the wrong thing, he shouted. And as soon as he did, the cat jumped with the jug on his head and hit the hearthstone. And Maggie Moan said to me, Mother, and the jug, Alice, she says, went into till a hundred halves.
4: <laughs>
5: <laughs> he never replaced it. After that, if he wanted milk on his porridge or milk on the tea, he just called whatever goat was in milk and come over and done his couple of <laughs> and very clean man.
2: <laughs>
5: when he was finished with his dinner, he uh, the, the plate and his.
1: Michael Ned's son, Michal Quinn. He, he, he wrote
2: about what he knew. Whenever you're listening to his stories, he's talking about around home, Mullaban, Carrick South Armagh. And he always said that you feed off the audiences, and those audiences loved him. So he, he was on a winner straight away. He didn't have to win them over. Especially whenever he was established when I'd be going around with them. Everyone was just they were just waiting, you know, for the crack. They knew that they were going to enjoy the next fifteen or twenty minutes.
1: Grace Toland of the Inishon Traditional Singer's Circle and the Inishon International Folk Song and Ballad Seminar.
8: Mixed stories would travel, even though somehow that they were of small places and you think it's very local um and and maybe a, you know, of, nobody would get it. But Mick's humour and the way he would extend and involve uh, people wherever he went meant that it could travel anywhere. I think he could have, you know, Carnegie Hall could have done with Mick. He would have been able to have them laughing as well. He wouldn't, it wouldn't have fazed him, you know. He
2: practised it. Might tell people that he didn't, but he did. He went over it in his head. I like, remember rooming with him in several places, Inish Owen and in Slego, and you'd wake up in the morning, that might be going over in his head the story that he'd be telling that day, just to make sure that he had all the parts of it. The story could last 20 minutes, but maybe that would be uh, three stories that he has found a way of amalgamating into one. So he, he became very good at that, going off in a, a tangent, and then would be able to bring it back.
5: Well, I tell you, Dan, my face was red. <laughs> but I was smoking on it for to keep myself calm. And as the bus then took to my own again... I looked again, because there was another out there. I still had the knife in the hand, and I whipped it off again. Because this time I, I fainted.
7: We've listened to many storytellers from different travels, and like, there's just nobody... Nobody can compare brilliant stories, but always had the punchline at the end, you know, which just, Mm -hmm. whether it be good, bad, rude or whatever, it was just brilliant, you know, and the place would be an
1: uproar. Patricia and Jim Flynn.
6: Now, Mick put a lot of preparation into it. He keeps his little back book to remember the names of people, but also he would put down into what stories he told at particular events. So he, he wouldn't sing the same song the next day, or he wouldn't sing the same song when he came back three months later. You know he would he would uh, manage it like that yeah.
7: you know if it was a very young audience, he would tailor the stories, not to, you know to suit the audience you know mm-hmm. whereas with an older audience, you know he might be a bit more risky with his with his yarns he was
2: an artist at that so it, it was a tight rope to walk because a lot of the 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 stories might be close to the edge
6: he he was so he was thinking and working all the time, and people thought it was just a casual thing he had but but no, he was... He would was, uh, work
7: the room.
6: Work the room, prepare the story. Yeah, sometimes it's easy for a singer to get a bit of order, but for a storyteller, Mick could just... Oh. just the room was... Everybody was just waiting with expectation. You know, where is the punchline? And in some cases, if you, did have, if, if you didn't have total order, he used to shout down at me, Jim Flynn. He says, <laughs> Jim Flynn, would you keep quiet? And then everybody would keep quiet. And then he would buy me a pint afterwards.
0: Telling a story. Anyone that can talk can tell a story. (laughs) Now, singing, that's a different thing altogether. (laughs) Singing is a gift. And thank God there's lots of us blessed with that. (laughs) But unfortunately, (laughs) there's an awful lot of people think (laughs) they're (laughs)
6: blessed.
0: Don't be saying... I got this song from so-and-so. For the people doesn't give one damn. <laughs> <laughs> the half of them won't listen to you anyway. <laughs> and don't be saying this song is about the man that tried to plough the rocks of bond or the rich lady that ran away with the servant boy or the ship that was lost at sea. If your song is any good, it'll tell its own story. (laughs) But ladies and gentlemen, the song I'm going to sing tonight happens to be no good. (laughs) (laughs) So I have to tell you a wee bit about it.
6: (laughs) And it's not
2: like
6: the
0: man...
3: Michael's
1: calendar was full throughout the year with festival invitations and singing weekends.
3: Wexford was the start of it all. Then there was Inushone. Then there would be the County Flas and all of that. And then you were into the summertime. He and Mammy went to Drumshanbow. In later years, he went to Milltown. And that was another week, you know. And then there was the Flas. And the Flas was an, an expedition and they loved it. So that that was their year. It really, it added greatly to the quality of life that him and Mammy had and then whenever she was gone to the quality of life that he had. I was the last in the family to get married and we were thinking of getting married the first weekend in February and Daddy says, well... I'm very fond of Charlie and I wouldn't like to miss his wedding. And if it's on that weekend, I'll not be able to go because that's Wexford. (laughs) And there was a kind of a bit of truth in it.
8: (laughs) Festivals like the, you know, like Enishon, Mullaban, these suddenly were new outlets for people to be able to have an audience away from the home, suddenly you did have a place to develop. And maybe these are crafts that people like Mick were able to develop because they had a new audience. He was suddenly asked to a lot of places. That's always sometimes that you see somebody who's in your company and then you're hearing, oh, Mick's away to America or he's gone to Scotland or he's away to here and there. And you suddenly realise, oh my God, that... I know now why he's been asked to all those places, because you would have witnessed somebody learning their craft as he went along in life. That
3: was a very shy person. And the storytelling and the singing got him over a lot of that. In that circle, he was just so comfortable and so loved. He knew they loved him. And you'd see him walking in somewhere and people going, oh, there's Mickle Quinn, there's Michael," And that's where it would all start, you know. And you really did enjoy that end of it.
2: I started going to places with him whenever my mam died. Mam died in December 2005, and in which was well-established as a weekend that Dad wouldn't miss, we'll say, at this stage. You know, he he was very lonesome for my mum, of course, and he wasn't going out, he wasn't singing, he wasn't telling stories. Mam used to go with him to any show. I, I knew nothing about him. I'd never been at the singing weekends. It changed everything. I realized the crack that is is to be had at these things is unbelievable.
5: And as to heard it say, Oh, we'll never leave McGill again, my Mary, dear, and I. For if we leave
2: like I had assumed, it was a local thing. But when I went to Inishowen, it was like walking in with Bono or something like that. Just the Q, there was a queue for... Would form to give them hugs, you know. They just people adored him. I seen that so many times. We we shared a room, and and our relationship changed completely from from that weekend because we were going down to the session and we were singing together, coming up late, three or four o'clock in the morning, rooming like more like buddies than father and son, you know. We're getting tipsy together and we were both sad for my mum I have to say that that weekend and it's a very emotional thing whenever you're sitting in a room of singers like and you're already sad like the chances are you're going to cry in public you know and of course that all happened happened and Helped, you know.
5: We will come for another
3: the traditional singing and the traditional music is a great field because you see your parents as a social equal rather than seeing them as your parents. And you become friends, really, rather than... That's me, I can't do this or whatever. You, do, you develop a deeper friendship, you do. In
1: 2014, Michael was at the Sligo Singing Weekend. He was 87 years old, with his voice weak and hoarse after an operation on his thyroid, but still in good form. He sat late into the night as usual, listening and encouraging singers until he and Mihaw retired to bed in the early hours.
2: His voice wasn't great, he, had, he was really hoarse because of the thyroid operation that was on his throat. So he didn't want to be heard in public. Uh, We went up to the room then. So I was in, getting ready for bed, brushing my teeth, and I came out and he was still sitting in the suit. I, You're not getting into bed, Dad. And he put his hand into his inside pocket of his suit and pulled out a half bottle of whiskey. Dad, it's four o'clock in the morning. He says, you wouldn't make an old man drink alone, would you? And he took a big slug of it. And, had, and, like, I was in my T-shirt and boxes ready to go to bed. I sat down in the bed beside him and he sang a song. And I realised that he'd been watching us singing the whole night and was bursting to get us singing the song himself. So he sang to me, and then I sang to him. And then he told me a story. You know, he had an audience of one. He told one of his stories. <laughs> and I put him to bed at about half five. I had to put him to bed at that stage. That was six months before he died. He had to get it off him. He had to... And it was only, he was only telling it to me. But, like, it was, it, he, he, he was compelled to do it. And, like, we had that sort of thing, anyhow. We were very comfortable singing to each other because we had done it so much. If, if, I, if I was driving him somewhere, we'd be singing the way there. We'd run out of things to be talking about. He'd sing, sing a song. And then he'd sing a song. And then I'd sing a song. And that would go forward and back.
0: I was once called the fair county, and slave gullion was my pride, where the bears and poets sang their song along my mountain side, where Kullen he once over me, and my fame its spread afar. And my name, oh my good people, is the county of Armaa. In May
1: 2015, on the evening before Mick Quinn passed away, his family gathered around him and sang songs into the early hours.
0: The day and shepherds too could tend their flock and shade them from harm's way, where the boys and girls could play hide and seek
3: along my wrong. Good like, I, I'll never forget his wake here, those kind of people coming in and, um, you know, being so devastated because they had such crack. You know, the music The music world is a bit um, of a strange one where you get very close to people over a weekend and then you mightn't see them again for six months and then you see them again and you're very close again and you develop very, very strong, deep friendships like that. And because Daddy was good crack and because he could lift a thing and tell a good story... And he was a very wise man as well, like he would have helped quite a few people through difficult things. He was wise.
1: And as he was laid to rest in the land that he loved, his good friend Rita Gallagher sang Craigie Hill, one of his favourite songs.
7: The thrushes they were warbling, the violets were charming. Two of you fond lovers talking A while I did
2: delay she he, he never stopped really learning songs. Maybe in his 80s he did, but um, he was passionate about the songs. Like, there's just so many. Nearly every song that I have of him, there's a, I, I have some sort of story connected to it, you know, that, that I remember... He had no errors and graces about him, you know, he was a country man, but he knew he was good at that. Especially when John Campbell died, there was no one really to touch either of them. You know, it was very unusual that the two of them came from such a close area, and with the two best, at it. like, you talk to anybody and they just say that John Campbell and Michael Quinn, like with it. And the two of them together were dynamite,
7: And to the bonnie band banks forever I'll bid adieu.
6: It's encouragement to local younger musicians and singers, I mean, through the cultist group especially. Oh, yeah. He was uh, very keen and they all loved him. And if Mick called him by their first name, I mean, they felt important, you know. Yeah. And he was very good at that.
7: Yeah. And uh, he loved the fact that there were so many... Uh, young singers and uh, young musicians and maybe not just so many young singers but that has changed now too he would have um, really promoted that and um, would uh, never miss a session when the uh, young people were playing you know because we travelled so much with him you know and Mm -hmm. like we just thought he was the bee's knees and we'd be telling him (laughs) how great Mm -hmm. he was but uh, he never got a big head
6: (laughs) No he knew he was good I mean there's no doubt about that and yeah I think he was a bit concerned that uh, it wouldn't continue like that. You know, and it was, uh, he'd say, I, c- I can't remember all the lines now as we are getting older. Yeah. But uh, he he uh, performed very effectively right up to the end. Yeah,
8: you know. Commending what Mick did, Jim and Tricia Flynn, Gerry O'Hanlon, the running of the, the Stray Leaf Folk Club. I mean, that was an amazing contribution to keeping doors open for people to travel to Armat to, to sing and perform in a very I suppose in a safe and welcoming environment that, and it was really really important because I mean it would have easily closed down and shut singers from 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 different parts of ireland being with singers from the north you know people were afraid if you, you you can imagine if you were from any other part of the country the idea of travelling to ar to armagh having that creating those spaces that that i mean that was a huge contribution to the traditional arts and keeping it really alive and keeping an island a sense of tradition within a full island not you know north south Really, really important. I, you know, and I, 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 think their their place in the history of the traditional arts in Ireland is really, really important. I'm sure he
7: knew what he had and, and the quality of what he did, you know, because everybody knew. But um, I suppose he should have been seen as an artist, a national treasure. I. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah,
3: you know, he was much loved in those circles, and it's great for us that. He knew it, and people will still tell us. You know, we we will still meet people who say, "Oh, your daddy," you know, and tell us something that he did or said, and um, and it's lovely. It's lovely to have that because I'm sure there's plenty of fathers who are like that, but their families don't hear it. We do because of the circles he was in.
4: He got it very hard, you know, because he was the first of the family. And when my father was on his deathbed, he said to me, Brian, you listen to whatever Michael tells you. He says, because he got it hard and he come up the hard road and he'll not tell you anything wrong. And he didn't. He's a great man.
1: Mickle Ned was young at heart, supporting and encouraging young people in the folk arts all his life. And this, of course, includes his family, who all sing and play music. His grandchildren once gifted him a notebook and asked him to write down a few entries that occurred to him about his life. In typical style, for the boy who left school at 13, who had to perfectly plough the field, lovingly collect songs and diligently master the art of performance, he wrote many recollections in perfect flowing handwriting. This entry is about a dance held in his father's hay loft to celebrate the return of his uncle from America.
3: Uncle Patrick was home from America he was away 25 years. My brother and I tidied the loft, swept the floor, then put planks on concrete blocks for seats. My mother inspected the work and looked for spiders' webs. Girls would sit on the seats. They did not like spiders. That night, John Kane and we, Francis, came. They were the musicians. Our Tilly lamp was filled with paraffin and pumped. Our neighbour, Frank brought his tilly lamp also. The loft filled up with dancers and my father made them welcome. The musicians were playing McKenna's reel. Patsy says, get a partner John and we'll hop the sailor. Then the dance was over. Owl Mick sang The Factory Girl and Aunt Annie sung When the sun is shining that's the time to make the hay. My mother goes around each girl and whispers softly, there's a cup of tea in the parlour. The yank is called for a song. There's a great big clap and shouts of good man Patrick. In a big loud voice he sings, when you and I in the one bed lay and you lay next the wall. Hasn't he a great voice? I didn't hear that song in years. It is coming daylight. Everyone sings, should our acquaintance be forgot, as they hold hands. Everyone hugs the yank. You can't beat John Ned's loft for the dance. So John Ned was granda. We, we're the Ned Quins. John Ned was granda, my granda.
0: Where Co Holland he won over me, and my fame its spread afar, and my name o oh my good people is the county of our